Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome into the podcast. Today is a, a cool show. We're going to have an interview on. And we, like we usually do, we preface the interviews that we just had. So, Rob, uh, what was what was our hopes in uh, having a guest on today, which we do. We're going to get into it in the show. But uh, why, why are we doing this? Yeah. What was your background on this? Because this didn't come out of nowhere. Well, some of that, Vinny, will come up in the interview itself anyway. So I'll leave some of those and some of the questions that you've just raised up. It will come out in the interview. But we have Michael Brown coming on. We'll introduce him in a second. And Michael and I and another colleague have been having conversations for more than six months. They've been very gracious. We do not see eye to eye on the issue of Christian Zionism, which we defined last week on the episode with Tony Dake. So I won't reiterate it now. And Michael is, is Michael is an espoused Christian Zionist. I mean, that's yes. what it is. And so, but we want to talk, bring Michael on because also of the issue of anti-Semitism. The, mm-hmm. the idea, the reality is what we br- presented last week was your, our theology of the end times has had a radically adverse effect upon the Palestinian people and the glorification of war that we discussed a couple episodes back is I think problematic. But then we want to say, yeah, but it's also, our theology also has been problematic on um, to the Jewish people. So Michael is going to make a comment uh, along the lines of people that hold to my theology, which is mm-hmm. not Christian Zionism, that it leads to anti-Semitism. And I would say, well, it doesn't necessarily lead to that because it, it leads to a high view of Jesus, which says, love your brothers and love your neighbor and love your enemies and lo- love all people. It just means that people aren't carrying that out. Uh, and people have taken that theology and twisted it. He also is going to make the claim that, you know, the promise is near the end of the podcast. He's going to make the claim that the promises belong to the Jewish people based on what Paul says in the book of Romans. And I said, well, okay, sure. But those promises belong to them in and through Jesus. And, and I think he would agree with that to some extent. I don't think he, he, we would see eye to eye, but nonetheless, I hope the listeners enjoy this podcast. Just to define something, I think one of our pushbacks would be, he tends to put things on like a binary spectrum. Mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. If you are supporting Israel and if you are seeing God's sovereign hand in what's happening there, then you you will be pro-Jew and you won't be anti-Jew and, and from an anti-Semitic standpoint, because he's clear, like he'll, he'll critique Israel and, and secular policies and those sorts of things that are anti-Christian where we would disagree on. We would see more of a nuance saying just because it, we would totally acknowledge it. Yeah. yeah. The, the different view, the view that we would hold, it can lead to semi anti-Semitism, but it doesn't mean it has to, or it does all the time. Right. Uh, and it certainly doesn't necessarily lead to that at all. That no, not at all. Because there's, there's plenty of people who hold to our, like, like us, where we would not be anti-Semitic and we right. would actually vocally uh, and emphatically denounce anti-Semitism. Right. I mean, the one thing I hate is the Yankees. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, and and I'm with you on that one, brother. He's yeah. from New York. Too. He is from New York. Say, yeah. We're going to have to scratch that from the podcast. <laughs> so, dang it. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So anyway, I thought it was a great conversation, a great example of brothers who could disagree and still, you know, even though we're thousands of miles away, we could, you know, virtually break bread. We could have done that. And and it's still okay at the end of the day. So it's a good, uh, good image to our, you know, to the church. So anyway, hope everyone enjoys it. Let's get into the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome into the podcast. Uh, Exciting show today because we have a guest on. It's always fun when we have guests. And this is I'm I'm particularly excited about this for a couple different reasons. Rob, we oftentimes have guests on who we might be on the same side of the equation on a conversation. And so we might be mining more. And this is one where we're not. But I think this is really good because I don't think Christians have enough intramural dialogue publicly with one another where we could show, hey, we are still brothers, we disagree, but we could do so amicably, we could do so with charity. And I'm excited about that today because we have a guy on who I followed for years, who I've respected for years, but we disagree on something. So let's uh, let's introduce our guest today. 
and Michael and I are not, and, and we're not on the other side of the aisle. We're no, no, yeah, guys. yeah. Okay, and I'm I, setting it up like you, it's a Jerry Springer show or something, right? <laughs> so we are so pleased to have Michael Brown, who's the founder and president of Ask Dr. Brown Ministries and of Fire School of Ministry. And he's also the host of a daily nationally syndicated talk, show, talk radio show called The Line of Fire. Michael became a believer on Jesus in 1971. We want to hear some more of that story, Michael. Uh, as a 16-year-old heroin shooting LSD using Je Jewish rock drummer. Uh, since then, he's preached throughout America and around the world, bringing a message of repentance, revival, reformation, and cultural revolution. Michael holds a PhD in Near Eastern languages and literature from New York University. He's a national and international speaker on themes of spiritual renewal and cultural reformation. He's also the author of 40 books, including Our Hands Are Stained with Blood, The Tragic Story of the Church and the Jewish People, to the highly acclaimed five-volume series, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, and commentaries on Jeremiah and Job as well as numerous books on re uh, revival and the Jesus revolution. He's widely considered to be the world's most foremost messianic Jewish apologist. He and his wife, Nancy, who's also a Jewish believer in Jesus, have been married since 1976. They have two daughters and four grandchildren. So Michael, welcome. Thank you for being with us today. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So Michael, why don't we begin by having this, just, just tell us a little bit more about your story, your background, including how you became a believer, this rock Jewish LSD using, but and also more about your current current work as well. So sure, yeah, I was born in 1955 in New York City. Uh, moved to Long Island a few years after that. My dad was the senior lawyer in the New York Supreme Court. Mom and dad very happily married, and my life was pretty pretty much typical of a, a kid growing up in the suburbs at that time. Uh, I was Jewish, but nominally, okay. so I was bar mitzvah at the age of 13. But it was so shallow that. I learned to chant a portion of scripture in Hebrew, but I didn't even know what it said in English. Uh -huh. it, it didn't dawn on me to even ask what it said in English. And, and the bar mitzvah itself was more of a big social event, a big party. What really impacted me at the age of 13 was later that year seeing Jimi Hendrix in concert. Oh. So remember, I'm, I'm born in 55. The Beatles come to America in 64. Okay. By 68, you know, we're one year shy of Woodstock. The culture has shifted quite dramatically, and I get caught, caught up in the whole drugs, rock and roll scene. And when I was 14, started getting high. Someone just asked me if I wanted to smoke pot. And it's like, well, we're not supposed to. So that, that gave it appeal. You know, you're not supposed to touch <laughs> it, right? And the fact that the rock stars all got high, so started smoking pot, but the, it had no effect on me. So I quickly went to to harder drugs. Mm. And then I found I had this high capacity to, to take drugs in, which as a foolish teenager was something I, I, I got into. Mm. You know, look at this, look at how much I can mm. do. And then, of course, I enjoyed getting high. So when I was 15, I started shooting heroin and wow. just full of rebellion, anger. Wow. You wicked. Uh, just hurt people with my tongue and nasty. And mm. we broke into a doctor's office, some of my friends and I, and a couple of houses just, just kind of for fun. And so I was just, you know, living a crazy rebellious life. And my two best friends liked two girls whose uncle was a Pentecostal pastor. Their dad had been praying for them for years. And little by little, the girls started attending the church services. My friends, fellow band members, started hanging out with the girls, going to the church services with them. Little by little, God started to change their lives. And when they shared the gospel with me, you know, initially it's just interesting stuff. And they talked a lot about end time prophecy and the book of Revelation. So in our drug days, we found that fascinating. But little by little, God began to work in my heart and people in the church began praying for me. And by the end of 1971, I had come under deep conviction of sin, uh, mm. encountered the love of God in a profound way. And it wasn't at that point 
that people took me through messianic prophecies and showed me, hey, look, even in your own scriptures, they speak about Jesus. It was rather that the Lord changed my life. Jesus became real to me. I was instantly set free from, from drugs, December 17th of 71. Wow. And uh, thereafter, as I began to follow the Lord and grow in the Lord, that's when the issues of Jewishness came up. Okay. You know, my dad said, Michael, I'm glad you're off drugs, but we're Jews. We don't believe this. Mm -hmm. So he brought me to meet the local rabbi. A local rabbi, fresh out of Jewish theological seminary, befriended me. But one of the first things he did was gave me a book on Christian anti-Semitism. Mm. And to be candid, as yeah. I look through the book, it didn't mean a lot to me because I didn't grow up in a church setting, right? Okay. So I didn't have a history of growing up in a Catholic church or a Lutheran church or a Presbyterian church. So th these were not my traditions that I grew yeah, up okay. with. Yeah. That was one thing. I didn't grow up in a, in a neighborhood that was anti-Semitic. My neighborhood was all Jewish right over the bridge, was all Gentile, but we went to school together, hung out together. So it wasn't a living thing that I grew up with. Yeah. And getting saved in a Pentecostal church, Pentecostals very much think in terms of we go straight from, from the Bible back to today, right? So I almost skipped over church history. Mm. But as, as you grow in the Lord, as you look at things, you, realize you, you can't just do that. And more importantly, the rabbi really challenged me about what I believed and challenged me because I didn't know Hebrew and would bring me to meet rabbi after rabbi, ultra-Orthodox rabbis, devout men, very sincere, because I was spending hours with God every day in prayer and the word. And I meet these guys and they're spending hours all day in prayer and study, but they're telling me I'm wrong. So that's what prompted me in college to start learning Hebrew and then ultimately mm -hmm. to get a doctorate in Near Eastern languages and literatures. I wanted to be able to read the text on my own. I wanted to be able to study it without having to rely on what someone else said and be able to come to my own conclusions. And of course, the more I studied, the more my faith was confirmed and Jesus being the Messiah. So uh, I, I started preaching in 73, mm. started teaching in, in Bible schools, ministry schools in 82. So I've, I've preached around the world, probably over 160 overseas trips, mm. uh, led a number of ministry schools, participated in some powerful spiritual renewal and revival movements over a period of years. And the three R's of our ministry are revival, so we live and burn to see the, the church revived, especially in, in North America, where there's so much compromise and complacency. Amen. Yeah. And then with a revived church, we want to impact the world around us. So our second R is gospel-based moral and cultural revolution, mm -hmm. radical change through the gospel. Mm -hmm. And the third R is the redemption of Israel, seeing the Jewish people saved. Mm -hmm. So that's what we give ourselves to in, in, in ministry and uh, you mentioned I've written uh, lots of different books. I normally write about four or five op-ed pieces a week in terms okay. of what's happening in the culture and world around us, and then do our daily radio show, which reflects on all these things, seeking to stir spiritual life among the believers, seeking to impact the culture, and addressing the Jewish people. Okay. Wow, Excellent. that's great. Yeah. Do us a favor. Let's let's actually uh, connect why we're having you on today to this current ep uh, this current series that we're in. So we've been giving introductory episodes for a number of episodes on the Book of Revelation. We're about ready to jump into the text itself, but we wanted to address another topic that we haven't addressed yet, which is 
you know, some of the negative consequences of poor interpretation, because one of the things we've been doing is really trying to frame a good way of reading Revelation. So we're, we want to acknowledge, though, hey, the church over church history, like you had mentioned, which most of us are probably ignorant of, mm-hmm. there have been bad interpretations of Revelation, and that has led to things like an anti-Semitic, it, it can lead to an anti-Semitic worldview from Christians. And so I, we'd like to know, like, hey, what are some of the effects has this played on Jewish people, you know, currently or throughout church history? And actually, I would even say, could you define anti-Semitism real quick? Because that's a word we might use, but I don't even know if we're familiar. Not everyone, you know, we don't want to assume everyone's familiar with that. Yeah. So so anti-Semitism is, is Jew hatred. It is the demonizing of the Jewish people as mm-hmm. people. It's not valid criticism of Jewish people or valid criticism of Israel. Okay. It is Jew hatred. It is, it is demonizing the people as a people. Mm. And when you look at church history, uh, the Catholic scholar Edward Flannery said, the pages of history Jews have memorized, Christians have torn out of their books. Mm. You know, if you grow up in the United States, 1492, Columbus sailed the mm. ocean blue. That's what you learn. If you're in a Jewish home, you learn in 1492, all non-baptized Jews were expelled from Spain. Mm. So you you learn history very, very differently. Let Mm -hmm. me give you a little parallel. When uh, Donald Trump was campaigning and used the MAGA slogan, make America great again, uh, I had black Christian friends that said, when was America great? You know, Mm -hmm. in other words, American history is very different to an African-American lens or a Native Mm -hmm. American lens. Right. So it's the same with church history through Jewish eyes. So what what began to happen was that as the Jewish people continued to reject the gospel as a people, that that the church began to turn more and more against Jews, branded them the assassins of Christ, accused them of of deicide, of of killing God. And Mm -hmm. now you have, say, the Old Testament passages of God rebuking Israel as stiff-necked and Mm hard-hearted. You have Jesus rebuking the Pharisees and religious leaders. Now right. these become slogans to to characterize the Jewish people as a whole. They're, they're they they became weapons, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, they they are they are now a, a wicked seed, mm. and the fact that they continue to exist is a real problem oh. because they haven't just gone away. They continue to exist with their own religion, and now once you have mm. the Christianization of the Roman Empire. And the, the triumph of the church, now now the church, look at our monuments, look at our buildings, these despised Jews, persecuted, etc. And then you have things like John Chrysostom, one of the great early church leaders mm-hmm. in the fourth century, when, when he sees uh, people in his own churches that are becoming interested in Jewish calendar and customs, things like this, he preaches his infamous seven sermons against the Jews where he basically says that they're like fattened animals ready for slaughter mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that the synagogue is, is worse than a brothel. And I, he said, I'd say the same about their souls. Mm-hmm. By, by the, and, and then you even have acts of violence against the Jewish people, burning of synagogue, you know, different things happening. Can you put a historical con- date on that? My, so when you say that burning of synagogues, I, I'm assuming that goes for a lot, a lot of history, but we're, not, we're talking about, you're still talking about the early church, right? Well, yeah, the first time you have yeah. like an, an active of violence against a synagogue and a church leader kind of turning turning a cheek would, would be probably in the, the fourth, fifth century. Okay. So you're you're talking hundreds of years into church history, but mm-hmm. it's there. If if you fast forward now to the Crusades, mm-hmm. so some of the Crusades are organized formally by the Catholic Church, some is more of a of a mob uprising. We understand that. And we understand there was the pushing back against Islamic control of holy sites. 
But what happens is, beginning in 1096, as, as Crusader armies march through Europe, they realize we have a worse enemy than the Muslim infidels. We have the assassins of Christ. Oh. They begin to turn on their Jewish neighbors. Yeah. And, and that's where the, the custom began of, of offering them baptism or death. Mm. And for many a Jew, it became the noble thing to do to die with the confession of the Shema that mm. there's that we serve the one God of Israel rather than to convert to Catholicism. So it was during the Crusades that you had a lot of Jewish martyrdom. And uh, most infamously, and again, these are things that are known in Jewish history and, and not normally taught in church history. But in, in 1099, July of 1099, when Jerusalem finally fell to the Crusaders, and many of the Jews fled to the great synagogue in Jerusalem, according to some of the ancient historians, Muslim historians yep, then, yep. that the crusaders with yep. crosses on their on their uniforms marched around the synagogue as they, they set it on fire, yep. burning all yep. the Jews alive on the inside, yep. singing, Christ, we adore thee, as yep. they marched around. Now, again, we would say, obviously, those people are not Christians. Yeah. No right. Christian would do that. Yep. But to a Jewish person, that is Christian. Yeah, that's right. That is Christianity. Uh, right. When you go to the Inquisitions, what happened is that there were Jews who outwardly converted to save their lives, but mm -hmm. continued to practice Judaism mm. privately. According to some scholars of the Inquisition, that's what started the Inquisition, was to purge out any Jewishness mm. uh, from the church. How dare they still affiliate with, with Jewish practice customs? There are even medieval baptismal formula uh, where formulas where the Jewish person getting baptized would have to renounce any connection to the Jewish people. Mm. I will not circumcise my children. I will not observe the Sabbath, etc. I will not give Hebrew names to my children. I will venerate uh, Mary. Some would even have to say I will eat pork. I mean, th this mm. is to be baptized. And to this day, I have friends of mine who are Jewish believers. When they came to faith, some well-meaning Christian gave them a ham sandwich to see if they were oh, really saved. Oh, yeah. yeah that's disgusting. Uh, so fast forward to Martin Luther in 1523, when he writes his little book uh, that Jesus Christ was born a Jew. And he says, if, if I had seen these coarse blockheads running the church and these bishops and popes, he said, I would have rather been a pig than a Christian. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Luther certainly let loose with his, his yeah. words, uh, but he, he was gracious. He said, they're the older brothers and sisters were the younger brothers and sisters. Perhaps, you know, we can win them. Well, 20 years later, he's yeah. old and sick. Mm -hmm. He has been exposed to uh, anti- Christian literature among the Jews. He has the idea that Jews curse Christians in their synagogues on a regular basis. Oh. And he finds some of the Christians in his churches are interested in Jewish custom and tradition. So he writes his infamous Concerning the Jews and Their Lives, published in 1543, where he gives counsel to the German princes and to how to deal with the Jews, beginning with their synagogues and places of business should be broken down and setting on fire. Mm. Their rabbis should be forbidden to teach under penalty of death. They should be herded together in ghettos, removed mm -hmm. passport privileges, given uh, lowly jobs, etc. Well, even some of Luther's contemporaries had an issue with that. And subsequent generations of Lutherans largely repudiated that and instead held to the 1523 writing. But of course, Hitler and the Nazis rediscovered that, uh, rediscovered the sermons of Chrysostom as well. And many historians say that the, the Holocaust officially begins with Kristallnacht, so November 9th of 1938. And what happened that night? Well, that's when the, the Nazis set the synagogues on fire and destroyed Jewish places of business exactly 
uh, to a T what Luther had counseled. Mm. And it just so happened that the next day was his birthday. And one of the leading German bishops said, what, what a great sight to see the synagogues burning on the wow. birthday of Luther. So this is church history as, as Jews know it. Yeah, yeah. I, I asked a learned rabbi friend of mine who lives in an ultra-Orthodox community in New Jersey. I said, the average person in your community, do they think there's a straight line from the New Testament to the Holocaust? He said, oh, yes, of course. Wow, he right. said, my father could not say the word Christianity. Mm. So my friend's maybe in his 50s, so his father maybe in his 70s. He said he could not say the word Christianity without throwing up. Wow. You know, Michael, you did a wonderful job there. Mm -hmm. And Thank I you. think those who are listening need to just stop this recording right now and just lament, mm -hmm. you know, and repent and understand that um, you may not have been a part of this. We may not have been a part of this. That's subject to discussion. But this is our heritage. And this is the way Jewish people around the world are thinking and perceiving, and it's, it's, let's be honest, it's justifiable. Hey everyone, we wanna thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we wanna remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access, but we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. I actually wonder, Michael, if the anti-Semitism actually even goes back further than you point. So interesting thing. John Chrysostom is, all, is often heralded in Christian historical books as this great theologian and great preacher. He's often called John, uh, the, the golden mouth. He's a great preacher. And yet you pointed out his radical anti-Semitism and how much that, how many problems that created. But the epistle of Barnabas, which is second century, is anti-Semitic. And Justin's dialogue with Trifo is understood as anti-Semitism. Am I, am I right with that? I mean, yeah, the, this, the seeds are there, you okay, know, and, okay. and what's interesting with Chrysostom was that his, his whole life was not marked by those sermons. In other words, he, he mm -hmm. preached them and, and then went on and did a, a okay. lot of good in other ways and even ended up in it with an amicable relationship with his local okay. Jewish community. But the, ser the sermons, when you read them, just read the first one. It's it's shocking, mm -hmm. the, the rhetoric and that, that a Christian leader could say such things. And right. again, those are the words that have, that have echo on in, in the, the Jewish memory. But er early on, and, and here's, you know, here's where we'll have some interesting intersection, right? Um, early on, it, when you see these seeds of anti-Semitism, they're connected with the church's separating from its Jewish roots. Mm -hmm. in, in other words, when Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 and says that Messiah, our Passover, meaning our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. So there was a full understanding that that the death and resurrection of Messiah happens in the midst of the Passover season right. mm -hmm. right. in harmony with the biblical calendar. His his resurrection is looked at uh, later in the 15th chapter as the first fruits of those who right. slept. So there would have been Passover first fruits, these consecutive holy celebrations in ancient Israel. Well, by the, by the time of Constantine, you now have a separation where you have a separate holiday and a different time called Easter mm -hmm. right. separated from the Passover. 
once you have, and again, here's where we'll have some interesting interaction, the spiritualizing of the promises to Israel, that God no longer has a purpose for the nation, that their their call is to be a witness nation, uh, cursed people for rejecting the Messiah. The destruction of the temple was, was the final exclamation point from God saying he had rejected them as a people. So individual Jews can be saved, but the promises to the nation no longer apply. There, there is no longer any sense of election from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and beloved for the father's sake, as Paul writes in Romans eleven twenty eight. All that's gone. Mm-hmm. And now anything that God had literally promised Israel is now spiritually given over to the church. The very thing that Paul warns against in Romans 20, uh, 11, saying, don't, don't be arrogant because of ignorance. In other words, the ignorance saying, we are the new Israel. We have taken over. We have all the promises. They're out. That's what opens the door and then mm-hmm. turns into this full-blown anti-Semitism and even hostility through Jewish history. And, and that's why those things remain such, such issues to me. What's really interesting, and, and obviously uh, we differ on the, the issue of Christian Zionism. We've each written books on, on different sides. That's a right, yes, yes, big yes. reason that we'll, that we'll get there in today. a few minutes. Yeah, that, that we're here today. But I can tell you this, that while I, I could give lists of issues I have with Christian Zionism, the consistent love of the evangelical Christians for Israel, for the Jewish people, it should not be at the expense of the Palestinians. Absolutely should okay. not be. It shouldn't be us against them, right? We, sh- we should want God's best for everyone in the Middle East. But what I can tell you, because I grew up with this, I've watched now decades and decades, the Jewish community was skeptical. Israeli leaders were skeptical of this Christian love, saying it's going to be like Luther. It's going to be like the others. I remember professors telling me, yeah, what's going to happen when we don't go along with your scheme? When we don't all get saved and and mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. and, and yeah, all yeah, this yeah. stuff doesn't happen, are you going to turn on us like everybody else did? And when that Christian love has remained there unconditionally to say, hey, we love you whether you believe or not, we want you to believe, there's no salvation outside of Jesus, that has actually gone a long way to building up a, a, an openness where we can talk about Jesus, Yeshua, much more freely than in the past. So as, as much as you'll have your laundry list of questions and issues when it comes to Christian Zionism. I do want to say that I'm an eyewitness to it, that the love of of Christians, many of whom see the restoration of the Jewish people back to the land as as a a sovereign act of God's grace, that has undone some of the terrible history. Mm. And then, of course, you have other Christians, especially the more liberal, quote, progressive, that the Holocaust was such an eye-opener to them, and they, they realized that this could not have happened, even though Nazism itself was anti-Christian, they realized it couldn't have happened uh, in Europe without centuries of Christian anti-Semitism leading up to it, that they swung so far that they no longer shared the gospel with Jewish people. That, in, in other words, repentance for them meant they have to affirm Judaism is fully sufficient. So, of course, that, that swings in another way that grieves me, because obviously, as a Jewish believer, I want all my people to know the Messiah. This is good. And just uh, before we go on, I, I think it's good to make sure that we acknowledge that we are all completely on the same page where we would all emphatically mm-hmm. denounce anti-Semitism as being evil and wrong and anti-Christian. So we're yes. all on the same page. We would all acknowledge that all people are made in the image of God. And so mm-hmm. whether it is Jew, Palestinian, American, African, wherever you're at, there's an equality in terms of uh, you know ontological equality. We are all image of God bearers. 
And so like we're on the same page in terms of how we view people in general. And we could also criticize, like you said, Michael, to, to be anti-Semitic does not mean you don't criticize. And I've even heard you in public uh, uh, talks criticize things that are happening, uh, you know, socially and whatnot in Israel. So that aspect can can happen. So yeah. I, I think we're, we're on the same page on, on certain fundamental things, right? Yeah. 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 And that everyone, Jew or Gentile, needs Jesus. Absolutely. Yes. Of sins. Yes. And in the Lord, there's no caste system or class Correct. system. So yes. in the Lord, there's no Jew, Gentile, male, female. We're all mm. equals in that mm -hmm. sense. Even though we retain our identity, we're all equals in the Messiah. So we, yes. we all agree on those, which are big, big points. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Let's take the conversation further. I'm not sure I would agree with the way that you have framed kind of my theological convictions, but that's, that's part of the fun of the conversation that we're going to get to in a bit. And I know we have a time sensitivity there, but can you speak just briefly a little bit about anti-Semitism in the world today? No, I was not tying it to Christian Zionism yep, and that yep. conversation at all. But I mean, I was just reading something the other day, like, you know, a Jewish person walking through a grocery store and someone rams their cart and says, you know, the bacon's over there. I mean, I'm like, oh my, I didn't, I didn't think about this kind of racial discrimination. And so can you speak about anti-Semitism in the world today yeah. and how much it still is a reality? For quite a few years now, anti-Semitism worldwide has been just as high as it was immediately before the Holocaust. Okay. Uh, Jews have been leaving France in large numbers. Jews have been leaving England um, because of, of anti-Semitism. Uh, some of it, say, for example, in France is, is sparked by a large uh, Muslim immigration and historic anti-Semitism within Islam. Uh, remember, is Taj al-Mini, uh, uh, who... The, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who was a compatriot of Adolf Hitler, who some believe was the one that counseled him uh, in terms of extermination. Mm -hmm. But it was easy for the Nazis to play into historic Islamic anti-Semitism, where there had been Jew hatred going back to the Jewish rejection of Muhammad. Um, you have, say, a city like Berlin for years now, Jews have been told it's probably not wise to wear yarmulke in Berlin. You, you think of, of, of all places mm -hmm. where, where the, the waking up would be that deep, but you do have the rise of, of yeah. neo-Nazism there. Uh, in America, the number one uh, most frequent hate crimes, be they religious or racial, are against Jews. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it's very common in New York City for a religious Jew walking down the street to have someone run up and 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 punch him or kick him. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, the, the radical Hebrew Israelites... They have mm -hmm. a very intense Jew hatred. I just mm -hmm. debated one of their, their leaders a few weeks ago, and I was trying to set a very different tone from, from their tone. And I said to him, listen, the vast majority of you who claim to be Jews are not, but I'm not mad at you for that. I don't hate you for that. Why do you hate me? Mm -hmm. You think I'm not really a Jew. Why do you hate me for that? Um, it seems to me that anti-Semitism is the default human nature value. In, in other words, fallen human beings, one of the things we, we do is, is hate Jews. And uh, when you have, say, the protocols of the elders of Zion, which talked about Jewish dominance and Jews trying to take over the world, and you have a country like America, where you have a lot of prominent Jews, that just fuels the fires of, of these lies. And the protocols r remain like gospel in many parts of the world, widely circulated, widely believed, there are parts of the world that either do not teach the Holocaust at all or absolutely minimize it. And then at any moment, despite some of the positive things that have happened with Israel and peace treaties with their neighbors, at any moment, there are literally several hundred thousand rockets pointed at Israel 
mm-hmm. uh, from Iran's sponsored groups and and others. So so when you go to Israel, you feel very safe and secure. But that's only because of extreme security measures. Because there is this hatred of Jews that they must be removed from the land, from 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 the river to the sea. Palestine shall be free. That means no Jews there. Hmm. Uh, and and even even when you think of say the uh, the Palestinian Authority and sovereignty over the West Bank or a Palestinian state, they made it clear they want it Juden Frei, to use the old German term. They want it free of Jews. No Jews living there. Okay, that, uh, so- that brings up some other questions also, but let me, if I can, and I don't want to, I don't want to undermine what you just said, but I, I think people of color, I think women, I think other groups that have had discrimination would also say to some, hey, you know what, it's human nature to discriminate against us also. I, I think discrimination against anyone that's not us you yeah, know, yeah and, exactly. Exactly, and, and us is typically the people of power because they're the ones who can enforce the discrimination, and that typically has been well historically has been the white European male. But let, let me go back. And right, let, so, me, let me just insert yeah, please, this. Please. Of course, you're yeah. absolutely right in saying yeah. that, and I appreciate you saying it. What what it is though, it, it, to me, there's also a spiritual dimension mm-hmm. that God did choose the Jewish people for a purpose, and Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem. And therefore, there's a particular satanic desire to wipe the Jewish people off the map. I believe there are promises that God said that we would exist until the end. Therefore, the enemy wants to wipe us out. So I see that additional factor. But yes, absolutely, there is there is something in human nature that defaults in the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And mean, the only thing yeah. that changes it with anti-Semitism is if you have enough dead Jews, then you have people beginning to to be sympathetic towards the Jewish people in Israel. But once you get a little bit away from that and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's not this horrific scene, then it shifts back to evil Israel, evil Jews. So Michael, you alluded earlier, and just so our listeners know, we've been in conversation for about six months and it's been a good conversation and I've enjoyed it immensely. And I know we don't see eye to eye. I've read your book, you've read my book and uh, we've been in dialogue, extensive emails uh, several Zoom conversations. We have another another companion in our conversations. We won't mention my name now, but the three of us have enjoyed some great conversations and going back and forth and uh, lengthy, lots of lengthy emails, which has been great. And I want to note, by the way, that one of the things that you said uh, after reading my book, and you had someone else read my book as well, that you were offended and that uh, the other individual, a Jewish individual from Israel was also offended. And I, and I, so I want to apologize for that. And I, I think in our conversation, I think we're meeting next week and hopefully we'll find out what it was that I said that was that was offensive. I don't think we'll be able to get into that that, that today. But uh, you commented and I appreciated this. You said in one of the email exchanges, you said, I guess that's what happens to us when we write about something with great passion, which I, I want to thank you for that gracious comment there. We hope you're enjoying the podcast and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. So one of your convictions, though, is that Christians like myself who believe that God's promises to Israel are fulfilled, at least anti-Semitism, I don't look at it as like one spiritual one. I don't read it that way. I know you do. And I and that's one of my criticisms of your, of your theology, but I don't think that's what's going on. The idea that you're claiming is that when Christians say that Jesus is the fulfillment, you made the comment earlier, of these things, at least anti-Semitism, go ahead and speak to that for, for a few minutes here. Sure. 
So obviously everything centers in Jesus yes. and all God's purposes come to pass through him. We, we agree on that. But I understand that he does not cancel the promises to the patriarchs, but rather confirms them. I agree. As, as, in, as in Romans 15. So let, let me just flesh this out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start at the, at the back and, and then come from the other direction. Uh, I do not know a single Christian who believes that God brought the Jewish people back to the land sovereignly, not because of our righteousness, but because of his goodness and his plan. I do not know a single Christian who uh, believes that, who ends up with a, a view demonizing Israel today and making e Israel the, the evil boogeyman responsible for all the injustices, et cetera, and has a very one-sided view of things. In other words, a, a, a pro-Palestinian narrative that is so pro-Palestinian that e Israel becomes an evil entity. I don't have a single one who does. However, every person that I've interacted with, be they Palestinian Christians or American Christians, who really demonizes Israel and paints Israel in the worst uh, position, every single one of them does not believe that God brought the Jewish people back to the land. So I just have to ask, okay, maybe we're biased. Maybe maybe both sides are biased and missing the point or unable to see clearly, but our theology does reflect how we look at things, how, how they actually work out. And, and to me, it, it's, it's just as simple as this. If the, the house where I'm sitting in now was my house and, and God promised it to me, it's always for your house and, and, and your kids, Right. So obviously my kids are going to marry other people outside the family, but they're my kids, right? Descendants. And then I come back a few years later and there are other people living here and they say, well, your family has been redefined or transformed. It's like, okay, I used to have a house. I don't have a house anymore. It breaks down like that. So if for me telling someone Jesus is the promised land is like telling a starving person, Jesus is the bread of life. So the let me, Jewish let me push back on two points there, Michael, yeah, and yeah. that is again this is a conversation. So I, I want to go back and forth, yeah. and that is sure people who are Christian Zionists and who believe that the Jewish people have a right to the historical land and have come back in fulfillment of God's promises. And there's differences of, of opinion there. Do not demonize the Jewish people, but some of them do demonize the Palestinian people. Absolutely, and some Absolutely. of them. And the second point is is the fact that. Your narrative of if this is my house and someone comes in and says, hey, all of a sudden your family's been redefined. That's exactly what they did to the Palestinians. They came in and said, sorry, this is no longer your home. It's now ours and you guys are out. So 500 Palestinian villages were depopulated. You know, we have a man that we interviewed previously, Tony Deku, mentioned his, his family home in Nazareth is now occupied by Jewish settlers. Yeah, but but I, I reject that that historical narrative. In other words, there were always Jews in the land. There was there was never a Palestinian state or a Palestinian identity. Uh, there were there were more Arabs than Jews for sure. Late eighteen hundreds, more Jews start coming back. More Arabs start coming back as 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 the land is is being cultivated. Everybody was they were side by side. It was fine. The, the first right. uprising under Hajjamid al Husseini, the first intifada, what in the nineteen twenties and the the slaughter of Jews in Hebron, that's where hostility started. The Peel Commission then, 1937, says, hey, look, give this little part to the Jews here, the rest to the Arabs. The Jews said, okay. The Arabs said no. But you still do not have, uh, you know, terrorism, widespread, you know, Jewish uh, attacks, things like that. In, the, in the, the midst of the Holocaust, 
with Jews not allowed to flee to Palestine? Yes, you do have some Jewish groups engaging in acts against the British, etc. You know, Americans can remember similar history here uh, with the colonies. But ultimately, when the UN in 47 says, okay, here's the new plan, this is for the Jews, this is for the Arabs, the Jews said yes, the Arabs said no. Ben-Gurion, Golda Meir, they, they wrote public appeals. I mean, pamphlets were circulated saying, stay, your, your neighbors, there's room for everybody. And, and then the, the, the Muslim leadership said, no, we'll destroy the Jews and push them in the sea. In the midst of this, were there atrocities committed by, by the Israeli armies against uh, Arabs? Sure. Were there people now that uh, were aggressively pushed out? Sure. Yes. It's unfortunate exactly. it happened, but it's, it only happened because twice the, the Arab Muslim leadership refused the, the partitioning of the land, which in, in each case, you know, the, even the 47-48 one was indefensible borders for Israel ultimately. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm all for addressing I understand that argument. But and I, I think of the Palestinians today, and I know a number of them, right, as, as you do also. I think if they were to say, yeah, if we were to go back, we would have accepted those agreements because hindsight, those agreements are a lot better than what we have now. Right. Which is almost no hope. But part of it was, I think, on the Palestinian leadership what, was to say, well, by the way, his Palestinians do have a history of 4000 years for that. That label actually goes back 4000 years historically as well. So it's not to say that they're a made up people group. They've existed for thousands of years under that name. But can, can you give me an example of that where they existed under that name? Yeah. Well, the Romans called it Palestina, of course, but that name actually goes back uh, 4000 years. There's actually a book. Uh, let me see if I can look up the name of it next time. Uh, next opportunity I get called 4000 years of Palestine, something along those lines. Yeah, but I, I, yeah. I would I would challenge the idea that there was a Palestinian peoplehood or a Palestinian identity. You, you may have a geographical place, or or the Romans using it to mock the Jews and to name it after Phil, you know the Philistines as the enemies uh, yeah. of Israel. But, but anyway, the Jewish we, people that's, didn't that's have a... a Jewish identity in terms of. His, I think we're kind of getting on different different tangents than we want to, but they didn't have an identity. I mean, as you say, there was always Jews in the land, but yeah, well, they were in the land, but they didn't have an identity as Israel or as a national state. They had under the Hasmoneans was like the last time that they really had any hope at all. But then the Romans came in and the, it was under Roman occupation, right, but it's, Roman control. But, but Jews were praying daily for the restoration of the temple and the regathering to Israel. That remained the hope to this day. It's prayed every but Passover that's an identity. Seder that's still, next year, next yeah. year in Jerusalem. Right. So we are the people and that is our land. And we're ex there was always the consciousness we are exiled from our land and, and the Messiah will bring us back to the yeah. land or God and his mercy will bring us back to the land. So there was always the consciousness every single day for every religious Jew praying that we are in exile out of our land and we're praying to Jerusalem with the hope of being regathered there. That, that never went away. The point I wanted to make, and then I have another question there, is the Palestinians not accepting the offers of the United Nations. Part of it is like, who are you to come in as, as foreign colonial nations, right? Imperial nations to divide up our land and tell us what we, what we get. It's, it's kind of like going into your home and saying, Hey, you know, you guys get 20% of your home or 70% of your home or whatever. It's like, no, this is our home. We want all of it. And of course that home did include Jews Muslims and Christians. They lived together in peace for hundreds of year, year, years before that. But the next thing I want to ask you about also, Michael, is the notion that Christian Zionists have a love for the Jewish people and they are not anti-Semitic. There's a lot of quotes, like some of the most popular Christian Zionists out there, like John Hagee and Robert Jeffress. They've like John Hagee actually has written in a book saying that he believed that the Holocaust was God's way of bringing the Jewish people back to the land. And their love for the Jewish people seems to be more, and sometimes, and I don't want to overstate it, 
more tied to the fulfillment of prophecy than it is to the love of the Jewish people. And they don't often have love for the Jewish people. And I think a lot of Israelis feel that way. Like, we'll take you Christian Zionists because you're helping our cause as establishing a, a homeland, but you don't actually care about us. You only care about us because we're pawns in your eschatological game. So go ahead. Yeah, so that, that was what I heard when I remember talking to some of my Jewish professors when I was in college or grad school, that that was definitely the feeling. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and it may have started there. In other words, it may have started with Israel being this, this prophetic symbol on the, on the prophetic clock and et cetera, et cetera. But over the years, it's, it actually has changed to a, a real sense of solidarity with Jewish people, love for Jewish people, getting to know Jewish people, uh, seeing injustices against Jewish people, recognizing historic anti-Semitism. My concern, and I interacted with John Hagee directly on this, is do you believe Jewish people need Jesus to be saved? In other words, the, yeah. and, and look, I, I, like I said, what, I came what did he say with all that? kinds of, of issues and concerns about Christian Zionists. That's everything in the church. We, we all... We all mess up one way or another. Yeah, right, the gospel is right. perfect. Jesus is perfect. We mess things up. Can I ask to what me, was Hagee's response to you? Uh, he, he told me that he does not believe in dual covenant. This was to my face. Okay. That if a Jewish person was in his, uh, a rabbi was there on a Sunday morning, he would preach the gospel the same as ever. But when he has a night to honor Israel, it's not for proselytizing. It's to stand with Israel, which, which I respect and understand. Uh, now I've had others supply me with quotes that yeah, seem right, to be exactly, covenant. Yeah. Then I spoke uh, at length with um, a Jewish guy that worked closely with Hagee for years, and the Jewish guy and I we, we got into a, a, a battle about some issues. You know, we were going at it, but he told me that that Hagee commonly tells him that he needs Jesus. So, you know, I, I, all I know is to my face, he okay, said he's not yeah, because he covenant. has said things in print that that the Jews very, don't very have, concerning. Have very so, so let, let me let me ask this though, just to flesh Please. something out, right? Please. Let's say a passage like Isaiah 62. Okay. For Zion's sake, I will I will not be silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet. And it goes on, God saying, I've appointed intercessors on the walls of Jerusalem. And he says, give yourselves no rest and give me no rest until I establish Jerusalem, the praise of all the earth, right? Uh, I read that and I say, okay, it, it, it remains exactly the same as always. Mm -hmm. That is the way the prophet spoke it and understood it that we were to pray for Jerusalem till it becomes the praise of all the earth. And we know Messiah comes back to Jerusalem, et cetera, you know, an explicit testimony in scripture. So my take would be, if you read that, yes, it no longer says that, that Jerusalem now has another meaning somehow. And maybe I'm misunderstanding, but again, to me, it's something that, that had a clear intent by mm -hmm. the prophet with clear reinforcement from the new Testament that now means something else. So yeah. am, am, am I misreading that? I would say that it has to be connected. That promise has to be connected to the very purpose for why God has called Israel, which earlier in the book of Isaiah 42 and 49, six, both say to be a light unto the nations. Israel was called to be the means through which God makes himself known to the nations. That's why in the book of Ezekiel says, you know what? I'm going to act for the sake of my holy name because you guys have defamed my name, but I'm going to act for the sake of my name. So that's always been God's concern is that Israel was called to make God known. And I think, of course, that means in the New Testament to make God known through Jesus. In other words, Jesus is God made known. And mm -hmm. therefore, making God known today looks like making Jesus known. 
Then I would point you to the fact that the ultimate fulfillment of this, and I think we're going to agree a little bit, but we might differ, differ on how we get there, is the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem is Jerusalem fulfilled. The promise is there. Zechariah 1, Zechariah 2, where the boundaries of Jerusalem will be expanded and there will be no more wall. But now it's a walled city where the gates are open. And the New Jerusalem, I believe, encompasses the entirety of the earth. And it's made of people from all nations, tribes, tongues, and people. And so one last thought, and I'll let you insert that. And that's why Jesus was so frustrated with the religious leaders, because my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. So that's how I would articulate it. Right. Now, of course, in the context, his rebuke is, is not about the nations there. It's about making it a den of robbers. And that's that's his focus when he rebukes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But clearly... The, the scriptures are explicit that he is physically, literally coming back to Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives, that God will fight for his people, the Jewish people, as they're repenting at that time, being attacked by nations of the world, you know, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14, which have not come to pass yet. And uh, he makes clear at the end of Matthew 23 that, that Jerusalem will not see him until it welcomes him as the Messianic king. So no one will see him until Jerusalem welcomes in Revelation 1-7, every eye will see him. Right. So Jesus will come back when a Jewish Jerusalem welcomes him back. You know, the, the Great Commission, the gospel going to all the earth, the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, and provoked by that on the heels of that, the salvation of, of all Israel. So all I'm saying is that, that I, I see, according to Scripture, a Jewish Jerusalem that has to welcome back the Messiah, and therefore, I recognize that Satan wants to keep Jerusalem out of Jewish hands. Satan wants to keep the land out of Jewish hands. Satan wants to exterminate the Jewish people, or at the very least, keep Jewish people away from Jesus. I recognize all of that. And when I see hostile forces that also want to wipe, wipe the Jewish people out, I, I recognize where it's ultimately coming from. But the, the point is, do you agree I'm not challenging. I'm yeah, asking. Yeah, fine, fine. Yeah, please. Do you agree that Jesus is coming back to the physical city of Jerusalem? That's one. And that a Jewish Jerusalem will welcome him back. So I would say the first question would be perhaps. I think there's a lot more to discuss with that. But perhaps, depending on how, quote, literally, Vinny and I did a session on literalism, you want to take the statement in the book of Acts, things of that nature. The second question I'd say, well, yes, but you quoted Revelation 1-7, every eye will see him. Right. right. And the fact that in Revelation 5, of course, he's, and people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue have come to him, so that it's not just simply the Jewish people that have converted, but the nations that have converted. Right. I, I believe the, the New Testament and the book of Revelation indicates that, the, that Christ's return will not come until the nations have converted. And I think that includes the Jewish people. We did some episodes on Romans 9 through 11. One episode was I gave my take on it, which I articulated that I think the conversion of the Jewish people is happening throughout history. It's not some final eschatological like end times thing that happens. I think it's a conversion that happens throughout history. I think your conversion is an example of that where Jewish people come into faith through history. But then we also interviewed Daryl Bach and Gary Burge together and let them let them discuss it also. So I, I think the answer would be that it's it's not just Israel that God's concerned about. It's the nations that God's concerned about. Right. And that, includes the, and that includes the Jewish people. Right. Well, that's what I just said, the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. Yes. Right? The gospel going to all nations. And the culminating thing then is provoked by a healthy church. And on the heels of, of the turning of the nations, uh, the salvation of all Israel. And, and I, um, well, yeah, I would, so, I would, so 
I would interview. Let me insert one thing there. Also, you made a comment about the fact that Satan doesn't want the Jewish people in Jerusalem. I see in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Revelation, the war in the book of Revelation is always described as against Jesus and against his followers. And so that's Christians. And that's who, and Paul says, we don't fight a, a battle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. The wars against God's people, against Christ and God's people. And so I don't, again, I had a Jewish magazine that was interviewing me one time and I was trying to articulate this. And she said, well, well, where does that leave the Jewish people then? And I said, well, which is a great question, by the way. And I said, it leaves them in the same place that left, it leaves everybody. And that is everybody's in the same bucket. We need Jesus. So go ahead. I interrupted you there and allow you to. Yeah. So it's interesting. I, I put the least emphasis of my overall understanding of things on revelation because of the degree of symbolism and borrowing of the rest of, of scripture that to me, I'm going to form my understanding first okay. and then read revelation against that larger light, simply because of the complexity of the book and the multiple angles in which it can be read. And we'd all agree it had to be absolutely relevant for the first century believers yes. reading mm -hmm. it yeah. back then. Very good. So I don't read it. Uh, I, to this day, I haven't landed. You're far more of an expert in Revelation th you. than I am. Yeah. So I haven't landed in a dogmatic way. I, I kind of experience the book when I read it and just, oh my, take it in. What I want to press is why I say that the theology that you hold to is the same theology that opened the door to anti-Semitism in church history. And I, I don't know anybody, I don't know any Christian I've interacted with who feels grieved over anti-Semitism in right. church history any more than you do. I mean, you've Thank been you. articulate, Thank clear. You. You, you bring it up to again today. I know you're not posturing. It's clear to me that you're sensitive and that these things grieve you and, and hurt you. Yes. So I, I, I understand that, which is what makes it uncomfortable for me to, to push this. But let's look at it like this, all right? God tells the Jewish people, I will scatter you in my anger and I'll regather you. I'll scatter you from the land in my anger. Okay. You, you'll be driven among the nations. You'll be persecuted. You'll be decimated. But I will keep you and I will bring you back. Yes. To me, the, the only consistent hermeneutic is to say that the regathering must be just as literal as the scattering and that without God specifically keeping us through history, under judgment and under satanic attack, that we wouldn't exist there. In other words, that there is still a purpose for us as a people. You know, even, even Gary Burge, who I've interacted with some, uh, we were together in, in the land at a yeah. Palestinian conference yeah, some years back. And, uh, you know, he, he, he would potentially see a spiritual purpose or, or God keeping the Jewish people or, or, or a mass conversion at the end, uh, but, but not seeing the physical land as as fulfillment but again to me things have to break down where somehow there is a spiritualizing of something that was given to israel that was intended to be literally and we say read the bible literally we mean read it as it was intended to be read okay which is yeah. poetry allegory is allegory history is history promise is promise etc okay. very good and and there therefore uh again if 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 zechariah 12 which has never happened in history all the I, would, I would contend against a little bit, but that would be another conversation okay. for a long Zechariah 14, you know, same, th same thing. I do the same thing coming Zechariah against 14, them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and then and then with that, his feet will touch down at the Mount of Olives, which Acts 1 tells us the very yeah. same thing, etc. 
We know the, earl- the earliest uh, church fathers, as far as we can tell, uh, consistently, where it is mentioned, consistently held to a restoration of the Jewish people and, and a millennial kingdom. Uh, so I, I I look at God keeping his promises. It's, it's about all the nations. When I said earlier, I've been overseas 160 right, plus right. times, uh, maybe 10% of that time has been to Israel. The rest has been all <laughs> over the world. Our ministry school has sent out hundreds of missionaries around the world, Excellent. only a handful to Israel. Mm-hmm. My heart beats for the nations. I, mm-hmm. I, I would go to the nations day and night if, if I could. Um, so it's not either or. Okay, uh, so so we're running low on time here. So yeah. just to finish up, my response to you is I totally agree with what you're reading of the Old Testament, but I think that's what the New Testament then begins to say. And that restoration is happening now. And then Jesus, repent, because the Lord's returning to the land, quoting from the book of Isaiah. And John the Baptist's call for the nations, for the people to repent. And that the way of restoration is through through Jesus and through repentance and faith in Jesus. So, so that's the way I'm looking at it. And that becomes expanded because the beauty of repentance is that it's not necessary to be an ethnically Jew, Jewish alone. John the Baptist even says, don't say you have Abraham as your father because God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. And that through faith in Jesus, as Jesus himself says in Mark 3, my, my brothers, my sisters, and my mother are those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Comes through, comes through Jesus. So that's how that's how I'm reading it. Two things. We'll get let you get one last thought in here before Vinny's going to make us close. And that is one that we've put on the table here: the fact of the history of anti-Semitism in the Christian Church. And if if I, if and that's one of the primary reasons why we invited you to come on, Michael, is because we wanted you to articulate that. I know you've done an excellent job with that, and I want our listeners to go. Hey, listen, we need to stop. And we need to recognize the fact that the church has been involved historically for a long time in radical anti-Semitism. And you should read about the Crusades because what we did, the Jewish people during the Crusades, we're going to go free the, the, the promised land from Muslim, from Muslim invaders. And then they slaughtered the Jewish people um, also. And what we did, the Muslims was not any better. Secondly, the, the point I would like to make is I think your argument is, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but Christian Zionism leads to... Uh, a reversal of anti-Semitism and a proper restoration of the Jewish people of the land. And my response would be, but at the expense of the Palestinian people, and I think you admit that a little, you would agree with that to some extent, but I think that it comes at a cost of the Palestinian people. I'm not sure where you're at on this, but this is another conversation that is the eschatology of dispensationalism, and I know you don't avow dispensationalism, leads to the glorification of war and militarism as a sign of the return of Jesus and the fulfillment of Israel in 1948 is one of these signs. And I'm, I'm saying, hey, that, look, this is problematic because war is not the way that God operates. So that, those are kind of my closing words. I'll give you your opportunity for your closing words, and then we'll let Vinny sure. interrupt us here as we're reaching the hour mark. So, Yeah, of, of course, God does work through war. I mean, we know that in First Chronicles 5, you know, many fell in the war because the battle was, was from the Lord. But no, I, do, I don't espouse this end time militaristic okay, focus Good. and and where, wherever dispensation as again i'm not a dispensationalist but wherever it's led to that kind of fascination or glorification or even all the jews get brought back into the land to get slaughtered while the christians are feasting in heaven yeah that's that's quite a bizarre out, outcome exactly and uh, as i've told you and and the colleague we've dealt with uh my my recognition that god brought the jewish people back to the land that he has sovereignly done that that the jewish people did not have the power to do that themselves that satan wouldn't do it that the god who scattered is the only one who can bring them back uh in his in his mercy uh that does not stop me for a split second from 
barely critiquing Israel, right? Or the the liberalism, uh, you know, the the pro-abortion, pro-LGBT stance of many Israelis, the militant anti-Jesus attitude of the ultra-orthodox, the uh, some of the injustices of the settler movement. I'm a friend of Israel, therefore, as a friend, I'll I'll rebuke him wherever you can show me something valid. Absolutely, I okay. I, I would to me to be a true friend means to to call out Israel when Israel does wrong. But what I would reiterate, so my my last two thoughts okay. are, one, through history, variations of the very theology that you espouse were the door through which anti-Semitism was opened, and that where I see the most hostility to Israel today and the most demonizing of Israel is among those who would hold your theology. And if they didn't, I don't believe they would ever go there. And then lastly, in Romans 9... When Paul introduces things, he does speak about his own people after the flesh, mm -hmm. his own race, fellow Israelites after the flesh, who are not believers, but yet the promises still belong to them. And Paul ends Romans eleven twenty nine saying, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So I go back and ask, what are the promises? They still belong to a, a physical people simply because of election. As he says in, in Romans eleven twenty eight, that the Jewish people are enemies of the gospel for your sake. So this now benefits the Gentile world as the gospel goes to the whole world. But they're loved on account of the fathers for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So I would just go back to that and say the literal promises made by literal God to a literal people remain true, not because of our goodness, but because of his sovereign purpose. And we all agree on the final outcome. Jew and Gentile together in Jesus, glorifying him forever. So let me end where, where Amen. we agree. Amen. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, and I would say, speaking of going back, go back to the episodes we did. I, I want to say it was in August or September of 2022, where we did go through our Roman series. And we have a couple episodes on Romans 9 through 11, where we discuss this, Rob, you and I have one. And then, like you mentioned, we did an interview with Daryl Bach and Gary Bird. So just if you want to go back and review that text a little bit more. But man, Michael, thank you so much for hanging yeah, out with yeah, us today. And it, this is a you. great dialogue. I enjoyed this because Rob has been talking to me for months now about how you guys have been in dialogue. And so it's cool to be able to feel like I'm just stepping into what you guys have already, you're continuing now publicly what you've already done privately. And it's just been, uh, it's just been very edifying for me on my end. And I think our listeners as well. So thanks for hanging out with us today. Thank you. And, and with, with honor and respect for Rob, uh, for opening things up, for allowing me to be extremely honest with him yeah. and our emails as he has been with me. So thank you. Amen. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome, Michael. All right, brother. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this. We'll catch you guys later. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.